0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. As Edward Earle walked toward his fate one cloudy October morning, he didn't seem the least bit rattled, which said a lot considering what that fate was. Earl stood upon the gallows that had been erected for him the day prior and had a noose wrapped around his neck. He seemed content with it all. Usually in this era, a lever would have been pulled and the floor beneath Earl would have dropped away, but this setup was a little different. This was a yank. This is retired journalist, Andrew Taylor, who researched this case for a piece in Adirondack life.
1: The gallows was constructed so that the condemned person's condemned man stood and there was a weight attached to the rope. And you would activate a switch, drop the weight, and then you would put them a slightly off center. The weight would yank them up and to the side. And that way you dislocated the neck.
0: This attention to detail and even emphasis on being humane in their executions might make it sound like the county had tons of experience with hangings, but that's not so. Edward Earle, who died a reportedly swift death on October 14, 1881, was the first person executed in the history of Hamilton County, New York, and nearly a century and a half later, his death remains shrouded in mystery. The name that appears on the list of executions in New York State is Edward Earle, maybe with an E at the end, but probably not, and that seems to jibe with the name the man went by as of his hanging, but it doesn't seem likely to have been his given name. That might have been Edward H. Poindexter, or maybe Charles Donahue, possibly Byron Madison, He might have been born to a wealthy Virginia family whose identity he opted to keep secret to spare them the shame of his misdeeds. Or maybe he was a European immigrant who started anew in New York. Or maybe he was an only child whose mother died when he was just eight years old and had been fending for himself ever since. Or maybe he was actually born in New York and, after serving alongside three brothers fighting for the Union in the Civil War, he'd hung up that identity to distance himself from some wrongdoing that prompted him to take up an alias. A pamphlet that circulated about him after his execution only compounded the confusion. As Taylor said, the pamphlet reported that Earl had been...
1: Born in 1840 and all this stuff about having affluent parents and his father serving in the, on the rebel side in the Civil War and a variety of details, which I'm not convinced are necessarily true.
0: Now, This is all very confusing, I know. The fact is, this whole case is basically one big mystery. The only real documentation of it is in a 1960s book about the Adirondacks, and it's barely touched on in there. So we're going to dig in and try to uncover as much as we can. To do that, we'll start with what we think we know is true. And that's that a young man who called himself Edward Earle arrived in the southern Adirondacks of upstate New York sometime in the late 1850s, possibly looking to escape some bad deed he committed wherever he was previously. He apparently met a girl named Harriet Hall, whom he came to fancy. This girl had the audacity of not being interested, and so Earle, distraught at being rebuffed, Stumbled to a pond, seemingly with the intention of drowning himself. His hat and coat were later discovered on the shore. The pond was dragged, search parties were formed. After three days, Earl was found alive about three miles deep in the woods, where he had been saved from starvation by a quote unquote Negro man named Jameson, who later would be thanked for his good deed by being shipped to a county poorhouse. Now, the aforementioned pamphlet spelled out what supposedly happened next, which was that Earl left the region for California, quote, with a view to remove as far as possible from the scene of his disappointment and was quietly living upon the shore of the farther ocean, end quote. Quietly, that is, until, according to some accounts, work brought him to South Carolina in the 1860s, where he supposedly was held captive as a Union spy by the Confederate Army, finally being freed after some 15 months when the rebels fled for safety before General Sherman's successful march to the sea. Neither Taylor nor I could find corroboration on that POW stuff, but it does seem that Earl returned to New York and the Adirondacks around 1864. If you don't know this part of the country, it has its own fascinating history.
2: An English map from 1761 simply calls the area deer hunting country.
0: This is from a documentary posted to the Sealed in Time YouTube channel.
2: The mountains would officially be called Adirondacks by Ebenezer Eamons in 1837. The Adirondack region would become part of New York State.
0: It would be after the Civil War that this region would become popular with some of the country's wealthiest families as a place of respite.
2: The elite in the country began to seek areas where they could retreat to escape the bustle of the new growing society. Across the United States, new resort hotels were being built to accommodate these wealthy clientele.
0: The Adirondacks became popular not just for its natural beauty, but its proximity to New York City.
2: These sprawling resorts would be more than just a place of rest. There would be a strong emphasis on mental and physical health and wellness, including sports and other recreations.
0: That was for the visiting rich folk, however. Life was less posh for those who lived in the mountains year-round. Anyway, if you had thought that Edward Earle's departure from the region would quiet his yearning for the woman whose refusal had apparently prompted him to pretend to drown himself, You were mistaken. After a six-year hiatus, Earl returned as determined as ever to win the hand of Harriet Hall. For some reason, she remained unmoved. Not only was she still not interested, but she'd gone and married someone else entirely. The nerve! Heartbroken yet again, Earl got a job as a laborer on a farm owned by Duncan McGregor. For reasons that are not clear, he apparently adopted a new name for this endeavor in Kingsborough, New York. He was known as Edward Poindexter to McGregor, who fired him after just a few months because, he said, Poindexter had used threatening language toward him. The next fall, so this is 1865, Earl re-emerged in Hope Falls of Hamilton County. He got a job as a blacksmith for a tannery, From here on out, he was known only as Edward Earl, with the poindexter alias only resurfacing after his death. After years of pining over a woman who didn't want him, Earl finally caught the attention of someone who did, a 17-year-old named Mary Burgess. Now, what we know about Mary is entirely from Earl's perspective, which isn't particularly flattering. As Taylor said, Earl described Mary as
1: uneducated mentally and morally, and whose only charms consisted in red cheeks, ruby lips, elastic step, and healthy appearance. And she was illiterate. One of the great disappointments of of Edward is he found that the letters she had written him during their romance were written by somebody else. And in fact, she couldn't read or write. So
0: according to Earl, Mary was a pretty dum-dum. While we don't know the veracity of much of Earl's claims about himself, we can deduce that he'd at least been educated. We know that by looking at the letters he wrote after his arrest that were later published in newspapers statewide. But we cannot confirm that Mary hadn't been educated. The best we can figure is that she probably wasn't from a noteworthy family because I can't find a marriage announcement in any New York newspaper. Regardless, after the wedding...
1: Mary's youthful vivacity and maidenly innocence soon vanished, according to Earl's allies.
0: Mary and Edward had three children together, the two oldest of whom died. As far as we know, there wasn't anything suspicious about those deaths, and was just a sad fact of life in the era, especially in the Adirondacks. The two were buried in unmarked graves in a small cemetery in town. Within a decade, they would be joined by both of their parents. Edward Earle was disappointed that his wife was illiterate. She supposedly having tricked him by having someone else write love letters to him while the two were courting. But Earl, stand-up guy that he was, didn't divorce his wife upon learning this, no. He reportedly set out to educate her. According to the Leavenworth Weekly Times, quote, he sought to lead her to education, but his efforts in this direction were always ill-received. The harmony of their lives soon broke into discord. Of course, there was fault on both sides, end quote. Earl's contribution to the discord was his drinking. Andrew Taylor again.
1: And his weakness for whiskey made him a menacing person, if not a violent person.
0: Mary's role went beyond not knowing how to read or write. She also, supposedly, had at least two affairs. Now, why do I couch that? Well, because she never got to speak for herself. And I'm not sure I totally trust Edward. We don't even know if that's your real name, Earl, to tell us the truth after the fact. Still, his version of events is the only one we have to consider, especially since reporters at the time were happy to accept it as fact and failed to dig much deeper. So here's what he says ultimately happened. Mary had one affair with another illiterate, awful man, and Earl, not wanting to break up his family, forgave her for it. Because he's a kind and wonderful man, obviously. But Mary, she wasn't done. About nine years into the couple's marriage, long after their two oldest children had been laid to rest, they moved on to the property of a farmer named George Brown. I tried to locate him independently from Earl's accounting of things, but again, His name is George Brown. There were some 50 million people living in America, according to the 1880 census, and while that's 85% less than today's 332 million, it still makes it stupid hard to try and track down anyone with a name as generic as George Brown. Anyway, Edward Earl, Mary, and the couple's only surviving child, a daughter named June for the month in which she was born, moved to the Brown farm so they could work for the man. It was called Keeping Shanty.
1: The best I can come up with is, is that they maintain the household. So Edward and his wife cook the meals, do the, you know, maintain George Brown's household for him.
0: Then sometime in 1877...
1: Well, Edward comes in from the woods one day and discovers beyond any doubt that George and Mary are having an affair, and that sets him off.
0: Earl demanded that Mary end the affair. Now, this led to a fight that ended up with Earl getting arrested, but Earl and Mary diverged on their recollections of events. Mary said that Earl had assaulted her and threatened her life. Earl was charged with assault, and the case went to a jury. Earl insisted that Mary was lying, but he did concede that he didn't help his defense lawyer much when he showed up to court drunk a condition that he acknowledged often made him disagreeable. The jury believed Mary, and they sent her all to prison. He stayed behind bars for some three and a half years, all the while, by his own account, plotting to kill Mary. See, he would later explain, she had perjured herself. I otherwise never would have harmed her. Never mind that I harassed another woman who didn't like me for literally years fake drown myself, routinely get angry when I drink, and have told friends that I did something in my past worth running away from. No, sir, you gotta believe me when I say Mary's a liar. I'm not violent at all, and that's why I spent years in prison planning her death. That was all a sarcastic paraphrase, obviously, but here's what Earl wrote himself. While in prison, each day was a day of suffering. As time went on, the galling chains of servitude grew heavier and intensified the bitter feeling against the woman. I never received an insult or an indignity in that prison without charging it to the account of the one who had sent me there. And the day I left the prison, my hatred, my thirst for vengeance was a thousandfold greater than it was the day I entered the place. end quote totally normal sounding, right? Now, if Mary had been the harlot that Earl insisted she was, you might think she would have moved on from old George Brown while Earl was in prison. But no, Mary stayed with George. While she wasn't divorced from Earl, the circumstances of their separation apparently kept nosy neighbors quiet about them living in sin. Earl was released from prison in November of 1880, after which he went back to the area near Brown's farm and rented a cheap room nearby. He would sleep most nights in his rented room,
1: while during the days... Earl begins to spy on Mary. He hopes to see his daughter, June.
0: He occasionally caught glimpses of her, he would later say. He would peek through the barn walls, maybe through slats or holes in the wood, and watch her. He wrote that one day, quote, The little one rode downhill on her hand sled, laughed and played all by herself, little dreaming that behind the boards of the barn I was watching her every motion and taking a stolen part in her innocent sport. Oh, it was nice. I forgot myself. My troubles. I laughed when she laughed, and when she was allied to the house, I pleaded as she pleaded that she might stay out just a little longer. End quote. Scenes like that one sparked him to have a change of heart, he later wrote. First, that change meant simply that, hey, when I kill Mary, I should kill myself too, because that's only fair. And then he realized that this would leave June orphaned, so he rethought things again. One Monday in February, he showed up at Brown's home. I don't know whether they were aware he had been freed from prison until that moment, but they definitely didn't know he'd been spying on them from the barn. He pleaded his case not just before Mary, but before George Brown, George's mother, some guy named Mr. Lewis, and Mr. Lewis's son. Earl said his love for his daughter had overcome his hatred of Mary, and so he begged her to pity him. Give me my child back, he pleaded. He said that the girl was all he had left in the world. Mary responded unreasonably, Earl said. She said, no, where are you even staying? If you don't have a house, how on earth will you care for a little girl? Earl found that a twist of the knife. After all, he was only without home because Mary had put him in prison, right? And now his homelessness was being used against him. He resolved to kidnap his daughter. On Wednesday night, he stole a tanning knife, as in an exceptionally sharp knife for fleshing hides, and hid in Brown's barn. Next day, the 17th, the woman came to the barn several times, Earl later wrote. Twice she was so near me I could have touched her with my hand. Once she carried away part of the straw in which I lay concealed." He said at that point he had no intention of hurting her. He listened as she chatted with her brother, who had come by the barn with her one time and left with some of her horses. Around 9pm that night, Earl was too cold and hungry to stay in the barn any longer, so he left by way of the back door, which he left unhooked. The next night, he returned. Things came to a head the following morning, which, to be clear, was day four of his stakeout. Day four. Anyway, this day, Mary seemed to sense something was amiss. Her steps slowed as she neared the barn. Earl wrote, quote, Her head was up, her eyes riveted on that barn. Her gaze seemed to penetrate the boards and see danger lurking on the other side. Her step showed timidity, her face fear. Every action, look, and gesture gave evidence of a suspicion that I was in that barn. End quote. In simpler terms,
1: Mary is suspicious because she sees the barn door unlocked.
0: Seeing his wife petrified supposedly endeared her to Earl, who would later write in a letter that would be published in newspapers nationwide, quote, Cold, frozen as I was, that look seemed to warm me and to melt hatred into pity and love. The look seemed to say Ed, I know I have been bad to you, but don't, don't hurt me, end quote. Then Earl describes arguing with the words that he claims to have understood her eyes to have said, quote, Hurt her? Never in all my life had I a greater pity, a deeper love for a human being than I had for that poor woman at that moment. Oh, if I only dared, if she would only let me, I would have kissed away that piteous look, I would have taken the poor woman to my arms and told her that in spite of all her faults, I loved the mother of my little children." End quote. Anyway, once Mary entered the barn, she still didn't see Earl hiding there. She grabbed a pitchfork from the barn floor and tossed some hay to the horses. Earl explained in his confession that he suffered at that moment, for he knew if she discovered him, he would end his days in prison. One of the colts Mary was feeding then noticed Earl in hiding. Earl locked eyes with a horse and then rushed from his spot in the shadows and blocked Mary's path to the door. She was trapped. Mary Earl stood face to face with her estranged husband, the man convicted of assaulting and threatening her, inside of her lover's barn in the southern Adirondacks. According to that letter that Earl would later write, Mary took one look at Earl standing there with his tanning knife and fell to her knees and began to beg. As Earl stood menacingly over her, Mary stammered to spare her life. She promised she would not tell anyone that he was in the barn, that she would go get their child and follow him wherever he led. Just don't kill me, she begged. Earl knew better. These promises were pipe dreams. He said nothing and turned to leave the barn. In his confession, he wrote, quote, It is hard to describe the workings of a mind that is distracted by powerful and conflicting passions. I could not think. I could not reason. I seemed to be bereft of any sense except pain. All my miseries were there before me. The disgrace, dishonor, the long, lonesome days, months, years in a prison cell were there. The desolate home, the terrible oath were there. And there knelt the woman who had caused all my suffering, using the prayer that I, in my bitter anguish, had formed years before, and as it issued from her lips, it disarmed, conquered, robbed me of a despairing man's last hope, revenge." He dropped the knife, walked out of the barn, and then stood beside it as Mary tried to wrap her head around what the hell had just happened. Not knowing that he was still right outside the barn door, she rushed through it and called for a lover. This sealed her fate. Andrew Taylor again.
1: These screams for George is what, what set Edward off.
0: He reclaimed his knife, which was 13 inches long and two inches wide, but who's counting?
1: And he, he creates a wound that produces instant death, whether he sliced their heart in half or cut the arteries around the heart.
0: I left the icky details in there on purpose. It's the efficiency of this wound that leads Taylor to believe that whatever Edward Earle's real name and background, he probably did serve in the Civil War. Now, after Earle killed the mother of his children, he promptly turned himself over to police. His defense lawyer wanted to provide a temporary insanity defense, which Crimes of the Centuries listeners know was first introduced more than 20 years prior in America in the trial against Daniel Sickles for the killing of Philip Barton Key II. Feel free to scroll back in your feed for that episode. Earl wasn't interested in that defense, however. He felt he was justified in killing his wife because she had wrongly accused him of violence previously. If he were to be spared a conviction, he wanted the acquittal to be because jurors agreed with his actions, not because they deemed him crazy when he committed them. Now, while this is a small-town murder in a sparsely populated area, it still drew big newspaper coverage, in part because of Earl's own confession. But there was another reason, too.
1: There is a newspaper rivalry involved in covering this, okay? Okay. You had the Utica paper, which has, you know, my hero of the story, John J. Flanagan, who wakes up at 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning to travel all the way to Sageville. befriends the, the convict has this really remarkable story that I actually went all the way to Utica to find there was not a digitalized copy.
0: Newspapers that didn't send their own reporters still printed Earl's confession in full. The rest of the country picked up wire stories about the tale. Then, yet another New York newspaper actually did some digging in hopes of figuring out who this Earl fella really was. A reporter from the Troy Times got a tip that Earl looked an awful lot like a criminal named James Donahue, and so the Troy reporter tracked down Donahue's mother. She was widowed by then, living at 335 Albany Street. She had four sons, including the Charles in question. Two of her sons had died and two were missing, though she said she believed Charles was still alive somewhere because she'd heard from him once in the previous 20 years. She refused to say when. The Troy reporter became convinced that this woman was withholding information from him, so he reported that it was likely that this woman really was the convict's mother. While this was picked up by The Wire and ran on page two of the New York Times, no less, not all the reporters covering the Earl case heard the story, so lots of people had no idea about the possibility until well after Earl's trial. While there isn't much surviving coverage of the trial itself, there's enough to glean that the judge was, shall we say, sympathetic
1: to Earl's situation. And the judge told Earl, you know, you had great provocation to commit crime. You know, getting yourself thrown in jail was this provocation. I mean, everything that you read about this murder is through the eyes of men.
0: So it's kind of convincing that the all-male jury convicted him anyway. Even when it seemed the newspaper coverage and even the judge himself was ultra-sympathetic to the guy, the jury sentenced him to death by hanging Earl reportedly took the conviction stolidly and wrote letters to his allies, discouraging them from trying to halt his execution. He wrote at least one letter that made light of the whole thing. Here's a snippet he wrote to a friend about 15 days before his scheduled appointment. Quote, As you may suppose, I am very busy preparing for my journey. I feel elated at the prospect of soon becoming an inhabitant of another world, though I must say I do not admire the route I am compelled to take in order to get there. Positively, my last appearance in public and no postponement on account of weather." No postponement proved true. In fact, Earl's hanging was moved up by one hour to account for the deadline of the one reporter permitted to attend. That was Colonel John J. Flanagan, a sort of celebrity journalist who, by 1881, was serving as city editor of the Utica Herald. Taylor said he considers Flanagan sort of the hero of the story because.
1: He at least said, you know, his whiskey drinking drove her to other men as opposed to, you know, vice versa.
0: Well, that surely seems minor. It isn't when you understand how other newspapers reported on the case. In their versions, Mary was an idiot harlot whose affairs drove Earl to drink. She definitely lied about his threats of abuse, and it was those lies that led Earl to, you know, stab her in the heart, causing instantaneous death. Women, am I right? Anyway, the night before the hanging was more like New Year's Eve than the eve
1: of Earl's execution. The newspaper men and the businessmen and a dozen others are all hanging out with him. There's no mention that they were drinking whiskey, but if I were writing a screenplay, I would put that in there. And then the next morning, something really remarkable happens. Earl realized his
0: daughter June, who, as far as we know, had been staying with George Brown or maternal relatives since her mother's death, would struggle in life as the daughter of a murderer dad and a murdered mother.
1: The newspapermen, along with one of the sheriffs, one of the district attorneys, they urge Earl to sign June over to the district attorney, because that way you can remove her from Hope Falls and all of the bad memories and bad history. And you can also give her a, you know, a leg up in the world.
0: Earl's thoughts apparently stayed focused on his daughter up until his hanging.
1: Right after Reverend Monroe offered a brief but very impressive and appropriate prayer, Earl was kneeling on one knee and then there's this remarkable scene in which he, he rose and he says, I have one more thing to say. If any of you boys ever meet my little girl, please give her at least one kind word. It may do her good and it won't cost you anything. Sheriff, I am ready. Goodbye, all. And according to the newspaper man who was there, when Earl made his last touching plea to the boys to say a kind word to his little girl, sobs were heard all around and tears fell from the eyes of strong, hardy men who are seldom unnerved and affected.
0: Well, we don't know precisely what happened to June immediately after her death, We know some things, like she changed her name from June to Jane, and at age 19, married a man surnamed Mason. The pair made headlines in Hope Falls, as they sought to find a jailer who had been rumored to have been given a letter by Earl explaining where his daughter could locate the vast wealth he supposedly had left behind for her. Neither the letter nor the wealth ever surfaced. In their search, they referred to Edward H. Poindexter as her father's rightful name, but there's no solid proof that it was. Nor was the supposed Charles Donahue link ever followed up again. The other alias I mentioned at the top of the episode, Byron Madison, is listed only in the pamphlet that circulated after Earl's execution, which may or may not have been published as a way to raise money for daughter June. In short, to this day, no one knows for sure who Edward Earle was, but they know an awful lot about what he did to become the first person ever executed in Hamilton County, New York. To research this story, I read stories and the pamphlet that journalist Andrew Taylor was kind enough to share with me. I read contemporary news stories, too, and brushed up on my Adirondack trivia through some documentaries about the region. I owe an extra thanks to Andrew Taylor for taking the time to talk with me about the case. The piece he wrote in the Adirondack Life magazine is titled Murder in Hope Falls, The Mysterious Case of Edward Earle. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.